Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter number 15. 1 Samuel 15 this evening. All of us like things that are easy, don't we? If I have to choose between doing something that's easier or, hard, or doing something the easy way or the hard way, I'm going to try to choose the easy way every time. Now, the reality is sometimes the easy way isn't the best way. But we're, we're constantly looking for the easy way to do something, a, a shortcut. And uh, YouTube and Facebook, social media, Instagram, full of videos that purport to tell you how to do things the easy way. And there's some cool videos, life hacks and things that show you how to use this product in a way you've never thought to use it before and how to fix this. A lot of the, the life hacks involve duct tape or crazy glue and that fixes everything, I think. Or how, to, how can we clean your house easier? And we, we have the robots now, the little, uh, whatever those things are called, the little circle vacuum. Any of you have one of those ro- roaming around your house tonight? I don't know if they work or not, but uh, they must. Plenty in, in that, let that, I don't have to vacuum. Send that little, that little electronic vacuum roaming around my house and and here's an easy recipe just four ingredients to cook this gourmet meal and we're always looking for what's easy last year during the shutdown uh, like you if you had children at home we were trying to figure out ways to uh, keep them busy to keep our sanity remember those days about a year ago right now it was like oh man I haven't spent this much time with my family in forever what do we do next And so we started on Friday nights. Our kids were responsible for cooking the meal. That was an adventure. And our teenagers, they were, all five of them would work together. They were responsible every Friday night for planning the the meal, going out to the store and shopping for the meal. I didn't want to go to the store and get COVID. Send the kids out there and and shop and get that and and put your mask on kids and your gloves and all of those things. And and they they did all the planning. So because of that, They were online, and they were searching up recipes, and they were looking at things. They were deciding what their theme was going to be. One older kid, he would pick the, uh, he or she would pick the appetizer. The other would pick the main course. The other would be responsible for the the dessert. And we got a three-course meal every Friday night. And uh, I don't know who it was, but in their searches, one of them found the easy way to make caramel corn. And it looked awesome on the Facebook video or the Instagram video, whatever it was. Take this skillet. It was so easy. Take this. Was it Kraft Caramels? Those little caramel squares, I think, right? Unwrap those. Put them in a skillet. Pour in your kernels. Maybe a stick of butter. I don't remember. Put the lid on it. And in five minutes, you have the most delicious caramel corn ever. Three, three ingredients. No work. Five minutes. So they went to the store. They bought their caramels. They bought their kernels. They bought their butter. Actually, with my money, I think. They came back. And they put it all in the pan, and about five minutes later, you know what we had? We had a house that smelled like burnt caramel and a bunch of unpopped popcorn kernels, and it did not work at all. And I was like, where did you hear this recipe? They said, it's right here on this video, Dad. I watched the video, and it's all these things that there's no way any of it's true. It's a bunch of clickbait, and they got us. The easy way doesn't always work well, but we like the easy way, don't we? We like to know how to do things easy. Well, tonight, and I don't want you to take my advice tonight, but tonight... I'm going to teach you how to destroy your life in four easy steps. Now, again, I don't want you to follow this pattern, but I think if we understand 
how we can do this. Hopefully it'll help us to do the opposite, to not to do it. And, and tonight we're going to look at King Saul's life as we continue in our series on toxic leadership, this study in the life of King Saul, how to destroy your life in four easy steps. We've been studying, this is uh, message number 10 in our Sunday night series on the life of King Saul. And I'm not sure exactly how many more we'll have, but probably at least three or four more, maybe five or six. We'll see where it goes. But this chapter probably, chapter 15, is probably the saddest portion of, of the history and life of King Saul's story. We started with, with this, this series on toxic leadership, and the first few weeks, it was basically all about how good Saul was. There weren't a whole lot of negatives. It was a bunch, Saul was, uh, he, was he was anointed of God, he was chosen of God, he had a great start, he was a good man, he, he was humble, and, and he was doing really, really well. But we come to chapter number 15, and chapter number 15, we find this chapter where all of his bad decisions, his bad directions culminate in his destruction and in the announcement of his family being dethroned as the rulers of Israel. The rest of this book of 1 Samuel is going to show a desperate man grasping at the final remnants of power and of leadership as his life spirals down to the place that he attempts to kill himself. And in, in some ways succeeds. We'll, we'll read the end of it tonight. But he falls on his own sword after being, being attacked by the Philistines. And I think there's much for all of us to learn from his life in this chapter. It's so easy in our lives to have a good start. We talked a little bit about it this morning. Is it I? To have a good start, but to end up on a destructive path in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our leadership. First Samuel, let's begin in chapter 15, verse number one. We finished up chapter 14 the last time we were in this series two weeks ago, I believe. Chapter 15, verse number one. Notice what it says. First word, who, who's, who, who is it that's speaking here? Who is it, church? Samuel. Let's remember who Samuel is. Samuel is the prophet of Israel at this time. He is the preacher. He's the prophet. He's the spiritual leader. That is who Samuel is. He's the one that had anointed King Saul. Samuel is the one that, that stands and is the representative of God to the people of Israel at this time. That's who it is. Samuel also said unto Saul, Saul was the political leader, if you will, the, the military leader. He was the king of Israel. So we have the prophet of Israel and the king of Israel. Samuel also said unto Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, you know my authority from God. Now, listen, Saul, you know that I'm not just speaking for myself. You know that I anointed you under God's leadership. So listen to me. Now, therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. So Samuel comes to Saul and says, Saul, I've got a message. This is not just good advice. This is not just what I think you should do. This is not just my political opinion as I've been watching uh, the, the news about what's going on in Israel and here's how I think you should handle things. This is from God. Listen to what I say, verse two. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. The Amalekites, Amalek, they are descendants of Esau. Israel, of course, are descendants of Jacob. Jacob and Esau, those twins that, that, that were born. 
And, and Jacob, whose name was turned to Israel, his brother Esau, they, because of Jacob stealing the blessing and the birthright, the, the Esau, and you have the Edomites also were Esau, Amalekites were descendants of Esau. And what had happened when they came out of, out of Egypt, when God delivered them under the hand of Moses out of Egypt, the Amalekites, seeing the Israelites were alone in the desert and defenseless, they came and raided them. They came and pillaged them. They came and took their things and they attacked the Israelites. God gave the Israelites a victory over the Amalekites, but God remembered what the Amalekites had done to his people, to the Israelites. And God says, now it, it's been, and, and the Amalekites had a history of violence. They had a history of ruthlessness. And God sees what's happening. Sometimes the wheels of God's justice, they turn slowly, but they do turn surely. And so God said at this point, enough. I'm done with the Amalekites basically being an enemy of my people, it's time to take care of them. And it's been generations, it's been, it's been quite some time, but we're going to deal with it now. And so in verse two, he says, I remember what they did now. Notice verse number three. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly, you see the word utterly there? Those that are in elementary school, there's an adverb, the L-Y, utterly destroy, what's that next word after destroy church? All that they have. And spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Pretty clear instructions. What should be left of the Amalekites? Nothing. I don't even want children left because I don't want them to raise up another generation. I want to wipe that people group off the face of the earth. That was God's instructions. These enemies of God, this is how the, God's people, this is how we're going to deal with it. The instructions were clear. Destroy it all. Now look at verse number four. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them 200,000 footmen, 10,000 men of Judah. Pretty powerful kingdom Saul has here at his disposal. 200,000 footmen. He's got, he's got this huge army that is at his disposal, a powerful kingdom. Things are looking good. And, and he comes and says, we've got our orders, boys. We know, we know where the battle is to be. We know, we know what we're supposed to do. We've got our marching orders. Now notice verse number five. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul does a good deed here. There's a group of people that lives amongst them that have been kind to God's people. And Saul says, hey, go tell everybody that you know, it's time to, time to get out of town. We're about to come and deal with some stuff. If you, if you want to live, time to get out. So they do. Verse number Number seven, and Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to shore, that is, over against Egypt. Things are going well. Saul doing what, what Samuel told him based on God's word, what he should do. Things are going good, and, and then we see the first step to destroying your life. Verse number eight, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites. What's the next word there, church? Sounds good. Now look, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Uh-oh. Next word, conjunction there, three little letters, verse number nine. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings 
and of the lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. How to destroy your life in four easy steps. Number one, be disobedient. Be disobedient. By the way, they decided there was some stuff good enough to save. It says all the stuff that was good they saved, that which was, was, was refuse and vile, they destroyed. It wasn't theirs to decide. God had already decided that it was all meant to be destroyed. And by the way, it might sound like, why would, why would King Saul spare King Agag? That might sound like a, an act of mercy. He spared the king. That wasn't an act of mercy at all. In fact, it was act, an act of pride. It was an act of self-promotion in those days. Keeping a king of another country in your prison was kind of a notch on your belt. And kings would parade out if they had multiple kings and countries that, and people groups that they had conquered. They would keep them in their prisons and they would be in chains and they would be emaciated. And those that at one time had been lauded and had been almost worshipped and revered as kings of these people groups, they would, be, they would be trotted out before the people, emaciated and in chains. And what was it saying? And King Saul would stand there and the imagery was very clear. I am the king of kings. I am the conquering king. Look at me. And by the way, there is only one king of kings. But in those days, the more kings that you had that you had conquered, and they would keep them alive to show everybody, if you mess with us, this is what happens to your king. And look at me. And Saul, why did he spare Agag? It was not an act of mercy. It was an act of pride. Look at me. Look at how strong I am. I want the people to worship me. Saul was not looking to do what pleased God, but what promoted himself. He wasn't looking to obey God's word but to satisfy his flesh. What is Saul saying here by, by sparing the good things and keeping some of the, the prosperity and some of the, if you will, material possessions, financial gain for themselves? He's saying, my comfort, my reputation, my pleasure, my gain are all more important than God's plan and God's word. When we disobey, what are we saying? Really, when you boil it down, we're saying, I'm smarter than and fill in the blank. When God's word says, this is how you ought to live your life and we choose not to, what are we saying? I'm smarter than God and his word. What makes me look good, what makes me feel good, what I want to do, what, what, what builds my name up, that's what, I, I'm not, and by the way, what Samuel gave him, Samuel said it, these aren't my words, these are the words of the Lord. And what did Saul say? I'm smarter than God. I know what's better with the Amalekites. I know what's better for my kingdom. I know what's better for those under my leadership. I'm going, to, I'm going to disobey the commands of God to do what makes me look good, feel good, and, and, and makes my life better and easier. And don't we do the exact same things? When parents, I'm sorry, when children choose to disobey their parents, what are they saying? I'm smarter than my parents. I know what's better for my life than they do. When, when, when we, and I know what's better, I'm smarter than God, I'm smarter than my parents, I'm smarter than my teacher, I'm, I'm smarter than my boss, I'm smarter than law enforcement, whatever it might be when there are God-given authorities, and I'm not talking about if a God-given authority is leading us to do something against God's word, but most of the time our disobedience isn't because they're leading us to do something against God's word, it's because they're leading us to do something that's against our desires, against what we want against what makes our life, we think, better. By the way, it doesn't. Disobedience never makes our lives better. Can't we all fall into that trap? Oh, I know God's word says this, 
but this makes me feel good. Oh, I know God's word makes it clear here, but this is what I want. This is what makes my life better. Verse number 10, notice what we see in verse 10, continuing along. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel. This is a tragic verse, verse 11. Would you read it aloud with me? Ready, begin. It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. You know what I see here? This is a good reminder for all of us. Our disobedience breaks the heart of those that love us. It breaks the heart of those that invest in us. It breaks the heart of those that believe in us. It breaks the heart of those that have, have, have served with us. And not only does it break their heart, but it breaks God's heart. The Bible says there, it repenteth me, God's, God's, that I have made Saul to be king. God's saying here, the word of the Lord, I, I, it makes me so sorry that he has chosen this path, for he's turned back from following me, and he, he won't listen to my word, and it grieved Samuel. It kept Samuel up in tears all night. A good reminder, children and teens, your disobedience distresses your parents. Christian, your disobedience brings hurt and pain to those who have invested in you. Uh, in our lives, pastors, our disobedience can bring grief to those we serve in the church. Serving God properly involves doing the will of God in the right way, at the right time, and for the right motive. Say that statement one more time. Serving God properly involves doing the will of God in the right way at the right time and for the right motive. How are you doing in obedience, in submission to God and to his word and to God-given authority in your life? You want to know a quick way to head down a path of destruction? Just say, ah, I know the Bible says that. I'm going to live my truth. Ah, I know my parents told me that. I'm going to do this behind their backs. They'll never know. I know my parents have, have asked me not to do that, but I'm going to live this way. I know, I know at work, this is against the employee handbook, but you know what? I, no one's ever going to find out. I'll do it my way. A great way to set yourself. Oh, I'm in college. I, what does that college know? I, I don't have to show up to class or the teacher. I, they'll, they'll never know if I, if I cheat or if I do this or I do that. or I, I, Whatever it might be, whatever shortcut, the easy way we want to take, a great way to put yourself on a path of destruction is to be disobedient. I know better than anybody else in my life. I know better. Verse number 12. Verse number 12. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, so Samuel says, I've got to go find Saul. God let me know that Saul didn't listen to me. It was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place. Do you see that? He set him up a place. And in, in, in this, in, in the King James Version, you read that uh, it doesn't quite you kind of, if you're like me, he set him up a place. What does that mean? He like set up his tent and he had a campsite. He set him up a place. As you study that out, what that means is Saul had already erected a, a monument in his own honor. He had already set himself up a place. Look at the great victory I've won. He's already set up a monument in his own honor. I want everybody to come and praise me. Instead of praising God for the victory God gave us, I want everybody to praise me for what I've done. He set himself up a place, verse number uh, 12, and, and is gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal, verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul. And notice this in verse 13. And Saul said unto, unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. 
I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul comes, Samuel comes and Saul says, oh, it's so good to see you, Samuel. You're gonna be so happy. I've done exactly what you taught me. I've done exactly what you've told me. What a deceiver. What a prideful, deceiving, disobedient leader of God, leader, leader of God's people. And, and look again, look how great I am. And then he lies. Verse number 16, skip down there if you will. Then Samuel said unto Saul, stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he saith unto him, say on. So basically he says, stop right there. Stop talking. I want to talk to you about what God told me. Okay, well, what did God tell you? Verse 17, and Samuel said, when thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel, and the Lord set thee on a journey and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? So Samuel confronts Saul with his sin of disobedience. Samuel, Saul, when you were humble, didn't God bless and use you? Wasn't your life going well? He, he brought you out of nowhere into prominence. He anointed you and let you be the king and your life was so good. God gave you so many blessings. And then he told you, go destroy all the Amalekites. And, and why didn't you? Notice Samuel's, Saul's response. Saul's response, verse number 20. And Saul said unto Samuel, yea, I have what church? I have what? I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which the Lord sent me. We can deceive ourselves, can't we? And have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. I did. I did what he told me to do. And here's the second way uh, how, to, how to destroy your life in four easy steps. Step one, be disobedient. I'm smarter than anyone around me. I can live my life the way I want to. Nobody's gonna tell me how to live. God's word isn't gonna, isn't gonna correct me. The godly influences in my life aren't gonna correct me. Godly parents in my life aren't gonna correct me. Be disobedient. Secondly, be dishonest. What a liar. Oh, Samuel, I have. Oh yeah, I have. He tried to dress it in spiritual clothes, didn't he? Didn't he? Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I did what I was supposed to. He thought he was going to fool Samuel. One of the quickest ways to destroy your relationships and to ultimately destroy your usefulness and your life is to be dishonest. And here's the reality. All of us have been dishonest at times. Let God be true and every man a liar. We've all lied. We've all been dishonest, but it should not characterize us. It shouldn't be that every interaction people are wondering, can I trust him? Can I trust her? I wonder, you should not have to wonder as your pastor, I, I wonder if he's telling me the truth about that and I should not have to wonder as a friend or a, my wife should not have to wonder every time she comes home and I, how was your day? And I tell her about my day, I wonder if he's telling me the whole truth. I wonder if that's really how his day was. Parents shouldn't have to wonder with their kids and kids, you shouldn't have to wonder with your parents. And we in our lives, a great way to destroy your life is to be disobedient and to be dishonest. Uh, it's one of the quickest ways. Truth is the foundation upon which every healthy relationship is built. What did Jesus say unto them in John 14? Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the what church? The truth and the life. No man cometh from the Father. Who is the father of lies? Satan. You're, you're, you're a liar. You're uh, the father of him, which was from the beginning. You are like your father who was a liar from the beginning. 
he was a liar from the beginning. What's in our lives? What are we reflecting more? At work, are we always shading the truth? Well, I, I didn't tell him a lie. I just didn't tell him everything. It's interesting when you, when you uh, take an oath to, 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 in a court of law to give a testimony. What do they, you put your hand and what do you say? I swear to tell the what? The what? The truth, the whole truth, and what? Nothing but the truth. Why is that? You know, you can tell the truth without telling the whole truth. And you can tell the truth and add something to it, and it's, you can tell the truth, but I add it, and it changes the story completely, and it's, it's not nothing but the truth. And so they say, when you're going to make testimony, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I'm not going to withhold any of the truth, and I'm not going to add any untruths to the truth to shade it in my direction. It's been said, you, you heard me say this a few weeks ago, I think, in, in dealing uh, with situations often, if I'm counseling a family or a, a couple, I'll try to meet with both of them. Because if I meet with one alone, and I'll, at times with the, the dynamics or the circumstances might dictate this, but most of the time you meet with one, and you hear this, this person's side of the story, and, and you're like, man, I... That, that, if it's a lady telling me or a man, the other one, that spouse is just that's the worst ever. I got to go deal with them. Then you bring the other spouse in by themselves and they tell you their side of the story and you're like, that's not the story I got there, man. That other spouse is the one that really has been all in the wrong. And then you get them both together and you get a third story. It's often been said there are three sides to every story. Your side, my side, and the truth. When our kids come home from school, most of the time when they tell us a story, what is happening, it's being shaded in their favor. It's, it's, it, they're telling us facts about the story, but it's being shaded in their favor. That's the natural way for all of us. And here we see Saul, oh, he told some truth. I utterly destroyed most of the Amalekites. He did destroy most of them, but, the, but God told him, don't leave any. And he didn't tell the whole truth. And in your life and in mine, dishonesty is a great way to destroy our lives. Number three, what do we see in verse 15? Verse 15, when Samuel confronted him, and, oh, notice verse 14. I, I skipped over that one. Verse 14, I was supposed to read it earlier. So Samuel comes and he says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. In verse 13, Saul, Saul says that to Samuel. Look at verse 14. And Samuel said, what meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul, God told me you didn't destroy everybody like he told you to, all the livestock. No, I did it all. I did everything. I, I obeyed the commandment of the Lord. Then why do I hear animals in the background? What, what are those animals? It's like the little kid that, you know, stole candy out of the candy drawer. And you say, where's the candy? No, I, I didn't eat the candy. Why is there still sugar around your mouth? Saul still has sugar around his mouth. There are, there are animals that are, that are, he says, that, what's the, that doesn't make any sense. Your, your story doesn't jive, Samuel. Saul, I mean, verse number 15. And Saul said, when, when, when faced with the evidence of his lies, look what he says in verse 15. And Saul said, what's the next word? Saul said, what church? They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the who church? People spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord. By the way, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. What does he say? Oh, 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 those animals? Yeah. Those Israelites, they, they brought them with them. We have destroyed everything else, but they, they it's never our fault, is it? They, look at verse number 21. 
Again, he tells them, I've obeyed. Notice, I did everything right in verse 20. Yeah, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Verse 21, but the what, church? The what? People took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. He knew what was right to do, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Number one, he, he blames it on them, and then he tries to make it sound good. The third way, how to destroy your life in four easy steps. Number three, blame everyone else. It's never your fault. It's, it's never, it's your wife's fault. That's why you're having marital problems. It's never my fault. It's the church's fault. That's why we're having problems in the church. It couldn't be my fault. It's the pastor's fault. It's always the leadership's fault. Couldn't be my fault as a member that I haven't been what I should have been. It's my children's fault. They're just rebellious teenagers. Couldn't be my parenting. It's my parents' fault. They weren't perfect parents. It couldn't be my sin nature as a teenager. It doesn't matter where you find yourself in life. The natural tendency is, it's not your fault. Why'd you get a bad grade on that test? Well, we didn't even cover that in class. Have your kids ever tried to tell you that story? I've heard it a few times. It's amazing. It's amazing how that works. Well, they didn't even tell us what was gonna be on the test and they never covered that. They're testing us on stuff we never learned. Maybe you didn't learn it because you weren't listening. Maybe because you're like your dad, goofing off in class sometimes. Here's the reality. Whenever we find ourselves in trouble, the first instinct is, let's find out whose fault it is. Couldn't be mine. And then he dresses it up in spiritual clothes. But we only kept these things, and this is gonna make it okay. We only kept these things because we wanna sacrifice to God. It's interesting, he didn't, wasn't sacrificing to God, he was building a monument to himself. We, we, we brought these animals to give them back to you, God. And aren't we good? Aren't we good in our self-righteousness at justifying our disobedience and our dishonesty? Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I did do that thing I wasn't supposed to, but I, I promise I had the best intentions and I was gonna use that to do more good things for God. I know I was dishonest there financially, but I'm gonna help somebody with that money. I know I did this thing that I shouldn't have done there, but I'm gonna use it for God's glory. Blame everybody else. I did as the king what I was supposed to. The only problem is he kept seeing the people spared. Verse number nine makes it very clear. But Saul and the people spared Agag. I did what I was supposed to do. It was the people. The Bible tells us otherwise. It's, it's never our fault. It's my wife's fault. Isn't that where the first, the first sinner on earth, what did he do when confronted with his sin? Blamed. God said, Adam, what did you do? I'll tell you what I did. It's the woman thou gavest me. Whose fault was it in Adam's idea? I, it was Eve's fault, and this gets even worse. It was God's fault. It's not my fault, God. You gave her to me. It's not my fault I'm this way, God. You know the way my parents, the, the, the way I was brought up in the dysfunctional home I had. It's not my fault, God. You know the, 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 the errors of the, the church that I grew up in. That's why I'm this way. And we'll, we'll blame God and we'll blame anybody else. And it started in the Garden of Eden. The woman thou gavest me, it's, it's my wife's fault. It's the way my parents raised me. It's the church I grew up in. It's my pastor's fault. It's my teacher's fault. It's my friend's fault. It was just peer pressure. I didn't have any choice. I had to do it because everybody else was doing it. It's the day and age in which we live. No one else stood up. Why should I? 
Here's what we learn from this. If we want to be blessed of God, learn to take responsibility for your actions. Admit when you mess up. Don't justify. Don't blame. Don't pass the buck. Well, I just reacted that way because of how they treated me. No, I acted that way because I got angry and upset and responded in the flesh. Verse number 22, what is Samuel's response to the blame game in verse 22? And Samuel said, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion, verse 23, is as the sin of witchcraft. That's interesting. He says here, to, to rebel against God's word, it's, it's like being a Satan worshiper, an occult worship, the sin of witchcraft, those that would be worshiping false spirits and satanic things. That's what he likens it to here. Saul thinking he was looking good. Oh, we're going to sacrifice to God. And he says, God doesn't want your sacrifice. He doesn't want your external shows of religion. God wants your heart surrender and submission. He doesn't want your, your animals. He wants your obedience. Verse 23 is as witchcraft, he says here, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Idolatry, false worship, worshiping idols. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, here it is, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Tragic verse. God's not looking, he says, for your spiritual shows. God's looking for your heart level surrender. God doesn't need your external show of religion, trying to look good, have everybody else fooled while you're living in direct disobedience. God wants your wholehearted submission. He is not primarily impressed by you and I singing some songs on a Sunday and giving some money to the church. What thrills him is a heart that obeys him, a truly surrendered heart. And by the way, the only alternative to full surrender is rebellion. Saul did obey in a big way, but not completely. And may I say this, even 98% obedience is rebellion. It's rebellion. And Samuel likens it to occult worship, Satan worship. Why? Because rebellion was Satan's sin. His sin, what was Satan's sin? Telling God, I want to do things my way. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to submit to your authority. I want to be like the most high. That was Satan's sin. When we disobey, when we rebel, and it might look good. Saul was still putting on airs of being a good spiritual man. Oh, we're going to, we want, and you're going to see here in a minute. Oh, we want to worship. We come to church. Oh, we worship you. And I'm all for singing and I'm all for giving money to the church. That's great. But those aren't the things God's primarily concerned about. He's concerned about how's your heart? Their lips are with me, but their heart is far from me. That's Saul. His lips were with God. His heart was far from him. Leaders, we will dress up our disobedience in spiritual clothes. Well, look how much good we're doing. That justifies my mistreatment of these people. Look at how many lives we're touching. Look how big our church is. But how, leader, is your personal walk with God? How is your integrity? How are those that know you the most? What, what do they know about you? How is your obedience to God in the areas no one sees? I like the quote Warren Wearsby said, God wants living obedience from the heart, not dead animals on the altar. Verse 24, I'm almost done. And Saul said unto Samuel, notice this, this sounds good. I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord. He admitted it, and thy words. 
Notice what he says, because I feared the people. I was more worried about what other people thought than what God knew. And I obeyed their voice. You're right, I did wrong. Verse 25. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. This sounds good. Here's the problem. I believe that the passage shows us Saul's true intentions are about to be seen. This sounds like repentance. And by the way, sometimes we can say the right words, but our heart still isn't broken. This sounds sometimes when you're dealing with different things and sometimes people are sad they got caught. They're not sorry for what they've done. I think this is a great illustration. Saul was sad he got caught. He was sorry he got caught, not sorry for what he had done. Why? Because true repentance involves a, repentance is a change of mind, a change of direction. True repentance involves a change of actions. And what is Saul about to say? Basically says, I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. I did it. Okay, it's out in the open. I got to admit it now. Would you come with me and worship with me? Why, why is that a big deal? You see, Samuel as the priest was the only one that could offer the official worship for the people of God. So Samuel to be standing by Saul is, is his stamp of approval. Saul is still a God-blessed king and I'm still, we're still in good position here. And so he says, would you come with me and let's go worship and sacrifice in front of the people? What is Saul still doing? Even in his words of repentance, he's still just worried about his image. He's still just worried about how people look at him. He's still just worried about his reputation. He's still just worried about his kingdom. How do we know that? Let's continue on. Verse number 26. One way we know it is because of Samuel's response. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. The gig's up, Saul. It's done. You went too far this time. Verse 27. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it rent. So Samuel's there. Come, come on, let's just go in front of the people. Let's make it right. You come with me. Let's go do a sacrifice. Let's do a public display of worship. That way everybody knows that I'm still in good standing with you. And, so, and Samuel says, we're not doing it. And he goes to walk away. And Saul reaches out, that desperation of a, of a leader who's losing his kingdom, losing his power, losing God's blessing on his life. He reaches out to grab the, the skirt of his mantle. He reaches out and it rips. And notice what Saul, Samuel says, verse 28. And Samuel said unto him, the Lord hath rent or ripped the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. Who's gonna take the kingdom from Saul, church? King David. He has somebody else, a humble shepherd boy who's obedient. He obeys his dad. When his dad tells him to go to the battle, he obeys God, he trusts God. He's gonna give it to David. Verse number 29, and also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. What does he say here? He says, God, is, this, is not a, this is not an empty threat. God's done with you, Saul. Verse 30. Here it sounds again. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet, here's what he says. What's he worried about? Saving face. Yet, honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship 
the Lord thy God. Saul says, help me save face, Samuel. Samuel, you're the only one that can offer that official worship ceremony. And again, too many of us are more concerned with being caught in our sin than about the offense our sin brings before God. We would be embarrassed if our sin was exposed to other people, but we completely ignore the fact that the person most involved, God himself, sees and knows our sin completely. One, one uh, man commentary I was reading this past week said, those of us who are religious are often tempted to cover over rebellion with rituals, to substitute ceremony for surrender. And we're, 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 we're tempted to, to make things look good on the outside. We disobey in one area and we try to make it up in another, to God with some offering in another area. We refuse the call to missions. God's burdened our hearts maybe for missions, but we resolve that we're going to tithe heavily in our local church. We refuse to break off an unhealthy relationship with an unbeliever, but we say, and, and we say, but I'll, I'll just stick around them long enough to share the word of God with them. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be a witness, but you know what I'm talking about, where there's an unbeliever in your life that's leading you down a wrong path and you justify, well, if I, if I break this relationship off, who's going to tell them about Jesus? But the reality is you aren't either. And we justify what we're doing. We refuse to give what God has asked of us uh, with, with, in different areas and we justify it in another area. And then lastly, I want you to see what we see in Saul's life, the fourth step to destroying your life. Number four, be hard-hearted. Again, worried more about what others think than what God knows. A failure to truly repent before God no matter the consequences. A failure to truly repent before God no matter the consequences. Saul was not willing to do that. Saul said the right words. He gave lip service to repentance, but all he really wanted was just to get his life going back the way it was before. I just want everybody to think everything's okay in my life. What is that? That's stubbornness. It's what Samuel said, stubbornness in your life. It's rebellion, hard-heartedness, an unwillingness to repent. By the way, who did we say is gonna replace King Saul, church? King David. King David's got his own issues he's going to have to deal with. He's got some of his own problems. But you know what King David knew how to do? Humble himself before God and repent. That man after God's own heart, when he messed up, like Saul, he said, I, I have sinned. But you know what he did? He truly repented. And God said, a broken and a contrite heart, I can accept. God said, I can, it's a sacrifice that's well-pleasing in my sight. I can deal with a man that messes up when he's t tender enough and humble enough to admit he's messed up. I can rebuild his life in his kingdom. I can still use King David. By the way, David, the throne of Israel, David continued to serve God even after his mistakes, and God used him in mighty ways. One of the reasons why, because he was willing to truly humble himself. Saul refused to do that. He would refuse to do those. Again, God does not want our rationalizations. He wants our repentance. He does not want our sacrifices. He wants our surrender. This was not truly Saul getting right with God. This was Saul trying to make everyone think he was right with God. I want to show you as we finish up the chapter. How do I know that? The last four verses, five verses. Verse number 31. Follow along. You've listened well. I know it's a lot of scripture tonight. Verse 31. So Saul says to Samuel, would you come with me? And this is interesting. It seems like Samuel maybe changed his mind, but I think his action shows differently. Verse 31. So Samuel turned again after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. So he goes and he does what Saul wants. And I think in Saul's heart, he thought, oh, cool. I got away with that one. That one's behind me. 
Look at verse 32. Then said Samuel, all right, bring out Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. So Saul, Saul says, Samuel, please go worship with me in front of all the people. So Samuel comes. And Saul worships. And Saul, I think, is feeling pretty good. And Samuel says, hey, can somebody go get Agag out of the prison and bring him out? And Agag comes delicately, kind of humbly. I think maybe, maybe bowed over a little bit. And he says, we can let bygones be bygones, right? Like, we're, hey, it's, it's a, I know our people killed some of your people. You killed some of our people. We'll call it even. Surely the bitterness of death is past. Look at, look at Samuel's response. Verse 33. The Bible, Bible gets kind of crazy sometimes. Verse 33. And Samuel said, as thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel says, I don't think so, Agag. It's, your time is up. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house to Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel came, what a sad verse, verse 35. And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. All three of them continued on, really, in deep hurt, pain, regret because of Saul's life and choices. God, Samuel, and Saul. Why do I believe that here Saul never truly repented because we see Samuel's actions? That would have been a huge display in front of the children of Israel basically saying, Saul done messed up and I've got to fix the problem. He's not okay. What he led you to do wasn't okay. This is what he should have done. He was hard-hearted. And by the way, what a tragic chapter by the way, what leads to all four of these things in our lives? Pride. Pride. What leads to disobedience? I'm smarter than God. I know better than his word and his plan. What is that? Pride. What leads to dishonesty? Well, my reputation matters more than the truth. It doesn't matter who I hurt as long as they think I'm something I'm not. What is that? That is pride. It, 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 he was more concerned with looking good before the people than being good before God. Have you found, fallen into that trap? You're more concerned with looking good before people than being good before God? What leads to the blame game? Pride. I don't care if somebody else gets in trouble for my, I'm more important than they are. That's what, when we blame people, I don't, I don't care. I don't care if, if, whatever it might be, my brother gets that trouble that he doesn't deserve, my sister does that he doesn't deserve, as long as my life is easier. What is that? That's pride. I'm more important than my brother. I'm more important than whoever. Fill in the blank on the relationship. What leads to unrepentant pride? I don't have to get right. I haven't done anything that bad. I, I'm not that bad of a person. Pride. And again, I want you to see what Samuel said. Would you read verse 17 aloud with me? Verse 17, I want you to see it, and we're going to turn to one spot and be done. Verse 17, ready, begin. And Samuel said, when thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. What did he say? Samuel, wasn't life going good when you humbled yourself? You want to keep from destroying your life? Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before others. Humble yourself before your spouse. Humble yourself before your parents. Humble yourself before your God-given authorities. Humble yourself. When you were little in your own sight, Saul, you didn't have any of these problems. And by the way, you were winning great military victories. You didn't have any of these problems, Saul, when you were little in your own sight. 
But ever since you got lifted up in pride, you disobey, you're dishonest, you're unkind, you don't treat people right, you blame everybody else, it's never your fault. You, you, you play the blame game, you never get truly right, you just say things to make it look like you're right, but your heart never changes. So how do you keep from destroying your life? Stay little in your sight and let God guide and direct and use you in any way he sees fit. Obey him. Be truthful, no matter what that means. Take responsibility. Repent when you transgress. All of that takes humility. And I want you to see, as, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story, I want you to see one interesting verse, and I promise I'll, be, I'll read this passage and we'll be done. Second Samuel chapter number one. So the rest of 1 Samuel, we're gonna look at some of this in the coming weeks, but the rest of 1 Samuel shows the bitter, terrible, ugly end of Saul's life and leadership. But I want you to see, Saul decided it was better for his life and kingdom to spare the Amalekites. I want you to see something interesting. At the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, the Philistines are coming. He's about to die. He tells his armor bearer, kill me. The armor bearer says, I'm not killing you. You're the king. So Saul says, fine, give me my own sword. And he falls upon his own sword. Problem is, he didn't land the sword in the right place, so he didn't immediately die. Now pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse number 5. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse number 5, the rest of the story from Saul's disobedience. And David, there's a man that comes to David. David's now the king. He's hearing, or he's hearing about Saul's death. And David said unto the young man and, that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan, his son, be dead? How do you know this? And the young man that told him said, I, As I happened by chance unto Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear. And lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me, and I answered him, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am and what, church? Verse number eight, I am what? An Amalekite. He said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me and slay me. For anguish has come upon me because my life is yet whole in me the regret of his life. And he says, I'm still alive and I don't want to be alive anymore. Verse 10, so I stood upon him and slew him because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them hither unto my Lord. I put him out of his misery. He was laying there. His sword was in, in his body, had, had gone through his body. He saw me. He said, who are you? And he said, I'm an Amalekite. And he said, please kill me. I don't want the Philistines to come and kill me. And I have his crown and I have his jewelry to show you this was King Saul. The final moments of his life, he was put to death by the very ones he had disobeyed in sparing. Those things that we let hang around in our lives will often come back to bite us in ways we never would have imagined. When God says, get that out of your life completely, get it out of your life completely. When God says, obey completely, obey completely. A tragic chapter. How to destroy your life in four easy steps. Is there one of these areas that the Holy Spirit's convicting you about? Be disobedient. I know better than God. I'll take this matter into my own hands. That's a relationship that makes me happy. I don't care what, it, what God thinks about it. I, I, disobedient. When faced with your sin dishonesty. You dress it up in spiritual clothes, but you're not telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. When you're faced with that and confronted with the evidence isn't matching your words, well, it wasn't my fault. It's the woman you gave me. It's my kids. It's my teachers. It's my pastors. It's my parents. 
It's my boss. It's the work. It's the culture. It's the president. It's the governor. It's never our fault, is it? Blame everybody else and harden your heart. The opposite, how do you not want to destroy your life? Obey. Be honest. Own up. Take responsibility and keep your heart tender. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.